This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. All right, I think we'll kick off. All right. We have two interesting life presentations here this morning, so I think I'm going to introduce these guys first, um, and then the topics. Um, I'll then let the presentations run. I'll do questions after, after each of them. First up, we have David. David is a life actuary, or he's recently a life actuary. He's worked his way through consulting, banking, and now finds himself as a data analytics and, and research actuary at Genry. Um, he says this crowd is quite intimidating. He's used to presenting at banking conferences of about, he said, 20 people. So, so it's, a, it's a step up. Um, Michael next to him. Um, yeah, Mike's also worked in the life industry, I think, most of his career with a stint in uh, consulting. He's been a product and pricing actuary at January, but currently finds himself in the business development space. Um, and Zandi on the far left has also been in the life industry most of her career in various uh, guises, currently a product and pricing actuary at Genry. Right, first presentation by David is a, an interesting look at a, a lab study um, using, and it's a really good practical example of, of a machine learning use case, uh, and it just goes to show how you can take some policy, some policy data and how some third-party publicly available data can go a long way to, to adding a lot of information and insights to an analysis. Zandi and Michael then present on sort of trends in life insurance. I think over the last few years there's been a lot written in companies' financials about volatile um, results around death claims, and they're going to take a bit of a deep dive into, into what they've seen in, in, our, in our data that has caused some of that, and whether just volatile is, is the new normal. But I'll start by handing over to David. Thanks. Cool. Morning, everyone. Um, thanks for the introduction, Jason. So I'm going to be focusing on how we can incorporate economic indicators to understand our lapse experience. Um, what you will notice is a few cross-references to the credit risk environment. Uh, that's where I learned how to do some of my modeling. And the reason I do have those cross-references is because in the banking sector, we have done a bit of economic modeling there. So sometimes it's, it's nice to understand that comparison. A few weeks ago, we at January had our annual convention, um, and the theme of the convention was open. And this was quite interesting for me because it was more about listening to our consumers, having that conversation, understanding what they want, and then determining what, offer, what product offering we would like to develop and how to cater our services for, for our target market. So typically in the insurance industry or in the reinsurance industry, we, we see ourselves as outsiders looking in. Um, and in looking in, we do have certain sets of information and certain sets of data that we can use. Um, so essentially in this slide, it, it basically relates to policyholders. And what we normally see is a bunch of policyholder records and a set of experience that, that we can monitor over time. Um, and we can use that data, and we often use that data by itself to build the models. And then we, we cater our strategies towards the insights that we develop. Okay, so in putting the pieces together, as I've mentioned, I'm from a credit modeling environment. Um, and after the financial recession, there was a lot of emphasis on 
understanding how the models worked in the banking sector, and also understanding that on implementation, we need to make sure that the models are still fit for purpose and that they fit the economic environment in which we are operating in. So that's where we did quite a bit of economic modeling there. And now I'm finding myself in the insurance sector. And similarly, we did look at economic indicators and we use those indicators to identify whether consumers are more likely to lapse or not. Okay, so from the banking sector, essentially what we did is we built models, and I'm going to cross-reference between banking and life insurance in the next two slides. With the models then, as I've mentioned, we needed to ensure that they were fit for purpose. Um, so sometimes you might find that in your environment you build a model, and then when you get to the implementation stage, your book may have changed, or your business environment may have changed. If your book has changed, we did have items that we called post-model calibrations, and these were essentially ways to tweak our models to make sure that they were still valid for use on implementation. So a typical example in the banking um, sector would be for your capsule modeling, we had credit cycle adjustment models. And what these models did is they adjusted our probabilities of default to make them relevant for the economic setting um, and the environment in which we were operating. What you will also find is there's a lot of factors to consider. So as I've mentioned, I'm looking at the economic factors, regulations may have changed, and your book mix may have changed. And the puzzle pieces may not always fit. Um, so some areas I, I have seen is Often individuals or people in our environment may find ways to fit models together and those ways not, might not work as well as, as we would expect them to. And essentially in the banking sector we, we call them sticky tape solutions. So you find duct tape and you plug the gaps um, and you essentially end up with a Frankenstein type model with many components and that um, enhances your, your model risk. So if we jump into this approach, and how I looked at your lapse experiences over time. I used machine learning, um, and it was quite different for me. It, it was quite fun as well, because the machine learning algorithms actually give you insights without you needing to go into the variables and do a one-by-one -one variable selection from the outset. What was nice about the machine learning algorithm as well is by running the solution, we could understand the interactions between variables and we weren't only choosing the best individual variables, we were choosing the best combination of variables that work as a solution to go forward. And we built one solution. So instead of having a model, um, performing a few post-model calibrations and then finding ways to put them together, we decided let's try put our economic indicator and our policyholder information together and see what we end up with. Um, and perhaps there are interactions there that we would have missed if we built separate models. And over and above that, uh, the, a lot of the value that we add from an actuarial setting is to apply insights and to apply judgment. So we had quite a thorough debate at um, January on some of the variables. Uh, so I will show you later, I do have a dodgy feature, feature importance plant. And this is because it's important to interrogate what the solution comes out with. Um, yeah, so I'll get to that in a bit. So to understand the problem, or to understand what we're trying to, to predict, essentially we were looking at lapse rates over time, and what you'll see here is a typical economic cycle, and you can relate it to 
um, two different metrics. So I'll cross-reference this to the credit risk environment. But essentially, at the beginning of the period, we had our financial recession in 2008-2009, so there's a spike in lapse experience there. Similarly, in the banking sector, we saw a spike in credit defaults, so that was comfortable for me. At the end of the period, uh, so in your 2016 period, we had uh, your credit rating downgrade, there was a bit of economic distress um, in our economy, there was political instability, so we do see an increase in lapse rates there. Also in the retail credit lending sector, we saw an increase in default rates there. So what this tells me initially is, if I have seen a shape like this and I modeled economic indicators and gained insights from that in a different environment, perhaps in the insurance sector we could get insights by incorporating economic information. The area in the middle where I put a question mark, that area could have an impact depending on your product mix. So what we did find there is your lower income sector was affected, and that's because there were changes in the National Credit Act regulation which related to proof of affordability. Um, proof of affordability. So in your lower income retail credit risk space, we did have higher defaults in 2013 as a result. Okay, so the technique I used was called extreme gradient boosting, and essentially what this is, is it's a series of decision trees built on top of each other. So in the image, you have a bunch of red dots and a bunch of green dots. What we're trying to do is we're running it through a decision tree to try and split the reds and the greens. At the end, you will have an error. So in this graph, you'll see there is one green with the red group. So what we would do with the extreme gradient boosting algorithm is you would run it again and again and again to try and get that green dot into the green group. Obviously, I'm, I'm simplifying the, product, uh, the problem, but if you do have any questions, we can go into detail. How did we use XGBoost? So one item is you can build a model. Uh, another item which I found quite innovative is we use it from a variable selection perspective. So we said we wanted to consider as many economic variables as we could. With those variables, your data set gets quite large because you need to lag the variables. You might need to create moving averages and you might need to transform the variables a little bit. So you end up with a data set of about 350 plus economic variables. Going through those individually could be a pain. Running it through an algorithm can take quite long. So what we did is we said, OK, let's choose how many variables we want and let's run that amount of variables through the model iteratively. So for example, if we wanted three economic variables, we'd randomly choose three economic variables. We'd run it through the XGBoost algorithm, get a st statistic of how that model performs, and repeat that process tens of thousands of times. So that almost runs over the weekend. I can get to work on Monday, open my laptop, and see what the best models were, see which variables were chosen, and then take my pick of one, what makes sense intuitively, two, what has a good fit, and three, what works well with the policyholder information. Um, and that's where we'll bring it into, into play here. So we wanted to test if the interactions make sense. So we, I naturally am inclined to a simple solution, having one model. But perhaps what we've done in the banking sector with a credit default model and a credit cycle adjustment model, perhaps separate models may still have value in, in, on their own, right? So what we did here is we built a model just using policyholder information, 
We built another one only with economic variables, and then we built a third iteration with a combination of the two. So here I'm mentioning three iterations, but to get to this process, essentially you're building hundreds of thousands of models, and then you're choosing the best ones, and you end up with three at the end of the process. So this is a feature importance plant. So this is the graph that I mentioned will have a few holes, because we wanted one that um, starts a discussion. And what this plot tells us is it's an output from the XGBoost algorithm, and it says which variables are the most important. The algorithm implicitly takes into account correlation, because by choosing the most important variable, it reduces the importance of all the variables that are correlated to that one. So what we've seen across the board is policyholder duration is a very important variable in predicting lapse experience. And this makes sense because the longer your relationship is with a customer, naturally the less likely they should be to lapse their policy. After policyholder information in this graph, we have a few economic variables coming through. Um, one of the dodgy ones here, which might or might not be dodgy, is the World Bank Access to Clean Fuel Index. So <laughs> we, we chatted a bit about this one. We've looked at it, and it does have a shape. It is stable over time. It does cross-validate, but that doesn't mean we should use that to drive our strategies relating to lapse experience, especially if we don't understand that variable in detail. Uh, this is a typical correlation versus causation problem, and if we relate it to some studies in the US, there was a study which showed that margarine sales are highly correlated with divorce rates. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I sort of get to an area, and this is quite a challenge with the economic um, indicators, because everyone is is quite clever, right? So you can stretch your explanation if you want, and you can say, okay, cool. Perhaps if we're all eating a lot of margarine, we're gaining weight. If we're gaining weight, stuff might happen. Um, <laughs> but that doesn't mean lawyers should watch margarine sales and then they're going to get a, a higher client base the moment it starts going up. So some of the common findings we've had, um, as I've mentioned, is policyholder duration was one of the most important features. Thereafter, your macroeconomic variables came through a second, and there was always a fairly strong one that came through. They, they bucketed themselves into three broad categories. Um, I applied judgment in assigning the categories, but one related to pocket spend, uh, so this was the disposable income or consumer price inflation, which might influence how much money we have at the end of the day. Another variable related to confidence. So you had some direct measures, like consumer confidence index, which came through, or something like foreign direct investment. Um, and this could tell a story in that if we're not confident in our economy, we might immigrate or we might invest our money elsewhere. Um, so that did make intuitive sense to me. And the third one was economic activity. So variables like trade came through quite a bit, um, and variables like gross domestic product came through quite a bit here. What we did notice, and we'll look at interactions a bit later, is different populations are affected by different variables. So, for example, in the banking environment or in the retail lending sector, you have your lower income populations. And these populations were very affected by pocket spend type variables. So fuel prices came through here, disposable income came through here, and changes in consumer price inflation came through here. In your life insurance sector, variables almost indicating factors that would affect higher income individuals came through. Um, and those are variables like the repo rate, 
and the repo rate typically an increase would affect people who do have large mortgages or who can pass those um, credit scoring procedures to get a large mortgage. So if we jump into the results, essentially now this is for the three iterations, so only policyholder information, only economic information, and then a combination of the two, we do see a few things. So if we look at policyholder information, if we look at actual versus expected events, essentially over time we miss it quite significantly, and that's because we haven't taken any variables that indicate timing from an economic perspective. But from a policyholder factor like duration, we do get a shape, um, and we are tracking quite well, except for newly originated policies, so policies with a duration of zero years. If we look at it by economic information, we get the timing right, so we can identify if there will be more or less lapses, but we don't really know who. Um, so if we look at it by an information relating to just the policyholders, we miss the trend quite significantly there. And if we use a combination of the two, what you will notice is we are quite better from a, a timing perspective and also from a policyholder perspective, we are doing quite well. So now we can say in the economic cycle in which we operate, we expect more or less lapses and we can also identify individuals that are more or less likely to lapse, um, which is quite beneficial because then you can start thinking about strategies to implement to try curb lapse experience. Okay, but we are still missing a piece. So we, we've built a model, we've looked at some of the features, but it's been at quite a high level. So there are a few things you need to look at still to, in, to ensure that the model is appropriate and fit for purpose before implementing. So one of the factors we looked at was a partial dependency plot. And for a machine learning algorithm, this type of plot is extremely useful because it tells us what the shape of each variable is by averaging out the metrics of all your other variables. Um, so essentially, if you look at this, this is Manson's policy anniversary, and what this graph says essentially is we expect higher lapse rates one or two months after the policyholder anniversary. And this could typically be because the, the monthly premium increases um, at policy renewal, or individuals might be reminded of their policy and realize they don't need it, and they might lapse as a result. I was also questioning whether the spike should be in month zero or month one, if it should be on the policy old anniversary, and a delay actually does make sense. It's in, it's in our um, data, and that delay is because sometimes it takes time to close your policies, um, and that admin does often take a month or two. Then, in looking at the insights, it's, it's quite useful to look at the interactions between variables that we might not have looked at together before. So, what we do have here is we have a graph which looks at your lapse rates by age and by your reaper rate. And essentially what this graph is telling me is individuals who are 60 or 70 might not have home loans, so then might not be as sensitive to changes in your reaper rate where an individual who is 35-year-old on our data set is lo a lot more sensitive to, to changes in our repo rate and might lapse as a result. And this is quite nice because by building separate models and not considering the two together, you might not get um, to these insights and you not, might not be able to develop strategies that are as rich and as cool. Like, I, I like this graph. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so essentially, in looking at machine learning approaches to understand lapse experience, 
What was quite nice for me is I didn't dive straight into the variables. I let the model first tell me what to look at, and then we started applying our judgments. And this is quite nice for me because the machine learning technique and the machine learning algorithm essentially helped me to listen. And in listening to what the data was telling me, we were able to build a puzzle and complete the puzzle to make something that worked pretty good. Thank you. So on, there we go. All right, I think we'll take some questions for David before we move on to the second presentation. Are there any questions out there? I'd love to ask you about the access to clean fuel, but I suspect you won't have any answers. <laughs> All right, this one at the back. Hi, David. Thanks very much. Sure. It's Wesley Clay from Hanover Maybe I missed it, but there was nothing mentioning uh, premium, so the cost that the policyholder is paying for their policy, was that not a factor at all? So we did test the premium and we did test the summer shirt. Um, it just came through as less important because some of the other variables were identifying that information already. Um, so technically what you could do is if you do value premium, you could find which important feature is explaining the same stuff. So it might just be a correlated item okay. and then you can put premium into the solution. Okay. No, I was just surprised it didn't yeah. appear in the list mm. at all. Thanks. Yeah. Cool. There's one down here as well and one along. So there's two along the aisle, yeah. Thanks very much, David. Sure. Um, one of the things I was just interested in, product. Did you segment the data by product type? You know, so looking at, say, a funeral or to get a bit of that dichotomy, it's obviously sort of socioeconomic brackets and income that also have an impact, yeah. which you sort of, I guess, indirectly did get uh, via some of the indicators. Yeah, so um, one of the factors I forgot to mention was this exercise was mainly related to whole-of-life policies. Um, we did do some, some work on the income protection side, and we were seeing similar factors coming through, um, but we decided to narrow it down just to the whole-of-life because it was quite useful. One over here. Looking in lapses would interpret how they, they are related. Yeah, so someone actually mentioned that in one of our conversations, and, and that's why it's quite useful to challenge the variables. Uh, so, what we did see is smoker status might not have a direct impact, but what might have an impact is changes in cigarette prices. So, one of the economic um, indicators might be correlated like a consumer price inflation, which might indicate your cigarette prices are going up. If your cigarette prices are going up, you might want to purchase cigarettes instead of your life insurance policy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so that's a, a, an argument. Obviously, you need to have the, the debate between different actuaries or different individuals who understand the subject matter as well. All right, any other questions? I mean, for me, an interesting aspect in you know, my limited knowledge of banking is this kind of through-the-cycle pricing that I sometimes hear about. Um, you know, and with disability in incomes, 
or the impact of the economy on disability income and the obvious impact of economic cycle, yeah, you know how we reserve for lapsing or lapses given that there's very obvious impact on it over time through these variables, you know, how do we kind of take account of that through pricing or, or reserving in future? So yeah. It just isn't, you know, all about that policy duration. That policy duration differs quite wildly over, yeah. over different periods. All right, if there are no other questions, I'll call up Mark and Zandi. If you think of a lapse question, yeah, we can ask it at the end as well. Thanks, David. Thank you. Sorry, I stole one of your mics. <laughs> get back afterwards. Good morning. So over, over the last few years, um, we've seen some of the headlines in the news and in the results so sort of reading um, spike in death claims hurts company X. Uh, and for company Y, um, claim, mortality claims experience continued to worsen um, over the last part of the year. Um, I mean, that's not only two companies, and, and we all work for a reinsurer, and, and we've had a lot of discussions and questions from clients um, sort of around this. So some of the questions we've seen are sort of um, mortality should be improving um, while we're not seeing this in our experience, or are competitors to seeing similar results. What are you doing with your pilots, um, and, and how should, or with other occupations we should be concerned about? Um, are there any changes in the claim, underlying claim causes and, and should we be concerned about that? So this is quite a lot of, to cover in 20 minutes, so I'm not going to go into detail. I'm going to sort of focus on, on three of these. So, so broadly looking at volatility, or at least volatility at a, at a sort of a large claim amount level. Um, we're going to look at occupations um, and maybe some, some occupations that, that should be a concern. And then lastly, we're going to look at, at claim causes or underlying claim causes, and we're going to look at sort of the accidental drivers in a bit more detail. So just a quick disclaimer. Um, the first one is that this is a lot to cover in 20 minutes, so we'll show the highlights. Um, the second one is that, that data is not always too granular, so some of the analysis is quite crude. The results are still interesting and worth showing, and I think it's something that we should investigate further as well down the line. So, so first up, we looked at our reinsurance book, and we considered um, all the mortality lives with, with policy that covered natural and, and, and accidental deaths. So you can see here all the claims we paid between 2005 to 2009, and we're looking at large reinsurance claims, which is reinsurance claims larger than 5 million. Um, so this is a few billion in, 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 in claims, um, but just keep in mind that 5 million reinsured for one company is not the same as 5 million reinsured for the other company. So what you can see is 2009 was a terrible year. Paul, you'll probably still have some nightmares um, following that. And then you can see the uptick in, in 15, 16, 17, which is, I guess, similar to some of the concerns we're hearing from some of our clients. But looking at the claims doesn't show us a full picture. So what we did is we said, well, let's look at the exposure of these lives. So on the amounts basis in light blue, you can see the exposure. We applied a expected basis to that exposure to calculate the sort of expected claims we wanted to see. So that's given in orange, or depending on your colors, like yellow, I don't know. Um, and, then, and then we're just comparing it against the actual claims paid. Um, so you can see we expected the claims to increase. But then when you look at 2005 to 2018 um, with this expected basis, you're running at sort of 91%. However, when you then look at 2015 to 18, which is, I guess, the problem is, um, you can see this is, this is 
Um, some of you bright sparks might say um, there's something wrong. So the actual expected doesn't really matter. It's just the comparison between the two. So the, the sort of the last periods ran at, I think, 116. The first one's 105, and, but it's the ratio that it's, that's important. So the, the 91 compared to the 100. So we've definitely seen these last years being worse um, compared, to, compared to the prior years. So what we did last year is we went to our clients and we, asked, we did a survey and we asked them, um, which policies would you least like to have in your books in relation to medical diagnosis, occupations, and pursuits? Bertus, who are you? I promised him I won't ask him a question. <laughs> um, so, so what came out was, uh, I mean, this is just a, a word, word plot just showing sort of it's in relation to the, the answers we received, and the bigger the, the word, the, the more of those answers we received. Um, and farmers, pilots, and occupations sort of came up. So then we went to our, back to these large claims, and we said, well, can we see, um, still keeping the data into, in, in mind, can we see the problem um, occupations um, present in this group? Any guesses? No one. Not in there, no. So, at least, so we've, got, we've got farmers. Um, and a lot of them paid in, in sort of 15, 16, 17. And then we've got sort of business owners, which is unfortunately how it's, it's captured, captured on the data side, um, with a large pay, uh, claims paid in, in your 2009, 15, 16, 17. So looking at this slightly differently, so just expressing it as a, as a proportion for the claims paid for that year. So you can see business owners being paid a large chunk. Um, and then this bigger proportion towards farmers for the last few years. And on, on your on your right-hand side, um, you can see the combined results for 16 to 2018, oh, 2006 to 2018. So 45% paid to business owners, 25% paid to farmers, and the 30% to the remainder. Um, we didn't do the calculations on the exposure side for the farmers, but I'm fairly confident that they did not represent 25% um, of the underlying exposure. So, I mean, you don't have to go far. You can only read the news to see that the, the farmers have had a tough time. So from the crashes to um, the drought to um, some of the murders we've seen and suicides. Um, so we decided, let's look at these large claims and let's see what's the sort of cause of claim um, within those large claims. So you can see the suicides in purple, um, aviation accidents in, in, in brown, and then your, your natural causes in, in, in light green. So then just expressing it slightly differently and, and in proportion to, to sort of the, the total for the year, um, you can see the natural causes in light green being quite big, um, the suicides, um, aviation accidents, and the transport being your, your road accidents. So again, considering um, the, whole, the whole period, so 2006 to 2019, um, suicides representing 9% of those claims, Aviation accidents, 15. Your transport accidents, um, 11%. And your um, natural causes, 49%. So just standing still and quickly looking at those, um, I think it was quite interesting to me to note that um, yeah, the natural causes were actually quite low. Um, naturally, I would have expected them to be more than just 49%. Um, given the, what's going on on our roads, I would have expected maybe the transport to be higher, but maybe the rich people just fly in and they don't drive that much. Um, and then lastly, the suicide was also quite concerning, um, given that most of you in the insurance side would have a two-year suicide exclusion. So paying 9% of these claims um, for suicide is actually quite a large chunk. 
So then going into more detail and just looking at the suicides and the aviation accidents, um, we can see that sort of on the suicide side, we're paying these business owners a lot of money, but the farmers aren't too big of a problem in this, in this specific set of data. But then we look at the aviation accidents, um, almost 50% being paid to the farmers um, and 20% to, to, to the business owners. So I think that's just quite interesting results in terms of where these amounts are paid to. We as an industry spend a lot of time and money and, and effort on understanding and underwriting and pricing um, natural causes. But when we consider something like this, where a big chunk of our, of our claims are actually accidental or non-natural causes, um, wouldn't it make sense to understand that better? So I'm going to hand over to Sandila to just go into more detail in terms of the accidental or non-accidental causes. Morning. Um, starting abroad, this graph um, compares the South African accidental rates to um, other countries. It comes from the World Health Organization Global Health Estimates and considers accidental rates for the World Health Organization member states. Um, you can see that South Africa's country ra currently ranked 38 out of 183 countries. Um, we compared to um, other countries that experience high levels of violence. The Syrian Arab Republic is ranked number one. Iraq is ranked number two. Brazil is ranked 50. Namibia is 52. Um, the Germany rate is actually about 52% of South Africa's rate. And the United Kingdom is under 40% of South Africa's rate. Singapore was ranked the lowest at 183. The next graph is also from the World Health Organization and indicates the cause of accidental death as a proportion to total accidental deaths for a few selected countries. So looking at South Africa, South Africa had the largest exposure to interpersonal violence, which is domestic violence, in purple. So this reminds me of um, MI Next campaign and the recent gender violence campaigns in South Africa. Second was uh, your road injuries in blue. And third was self-harm suicide, which is highlighted in olive, olive green. For your information, exposure to mechanical, mechanical forces is injuries and fatalities due to being thrown or projected or a falling object. And collective violence is wars, um, terrorism, gang warfare. And we can see that the Syrian Arab Republic has quite a huge proportion in um, being exposed to collective violence. Moving locally, um, we considered January data from the year 2000. This includes your surplus and your quarter share treaties for our individual live business. Um, the products um, that offer accidental death cover only were excluded from this analysis. Please note that we are looking at all claims and not just large claims. This diagram shows the claim cost um, for January split between uh, natural and accidentals. As you can see, um, accidental deaths make up just under a third of our claim costs. What's also interesting is that um, natural um, deaths make up 64% of the entire book. This could somehow also be compared to what Michael had said, whereby for the large claims, the naturals accounted for 49% of the book. We also analyzed um, causes by we also analyzed the accidental death by cause. 
by the nature of reinsurance, only claims above specific authority levels were assessed. And as such, we do find that a lot of the cause of death uh, information was not available. Despite the high proportion of unclassified claims, we still had an access of over 2,000 claims that we could um, analyze where we had known causes. So this graph just shows the claim count of the accidental deaths, and we can see that car accidents and suicides, um, basically that's where most of our claims were. We, this is also based on January accidental claims. Um, we wanted to see the cause of death by weekday. We can see that transports uh, peak over the weekends. Um, suicides remained fairly level over the course of the week. We also compared um, our data to NIMS, which is the National Injury Mortality Surveillance System, which is research done by the South African Medical Research Council. The NIMS data also showed a similar impact for transport, but however, it had much, much higher violent death and also it peaked over the weekends. Your unintentional non-transport injuries um, include injuries due to burns, falls, poisoning, and drowning. We were interested in the impact um, of ge geographical location. This graph comes from NIMS, and they produce a report where they collect data on unnatural deaths, unnatural claims at mortuaries around South Africa. So it covers about uh, 33,000 claims. Note again that NIMS claim causes indicate a very high level of violence, which is not evident in our insured data. This is probably due to the fact that NIMS considers, uh, considers mostly po uh, population data, and also homicides are not as prevalent in our information. So this graph uh, basically reflects the incidence, per, incidence rates per 10,000. So violence is highest in Cape Town. This is due to um, gang violence. Suicide, um, as you can see, were pretty much level, and transport uh, was slightly higher in Joburg, as expected. Coming back to our internal data, we considered some of the current rating factors, which can give an indication of accidental risk. Um, as you can see, if you compare male and female, males' accidental rates were much higher, and so were the um, smokers. So this graph says males and smokers inherently have greater accidental risk on accrued incidence rates for the specific portfolio that we did look at. Please do note that this is fairly high level and it was a univariant analysis and the rates were not standardized. But what one, we're showing this table is because we want to give an indication that the riskiness does change as expected. On the left-hand side, um, the graph shows a proportional contribution by claim count, and on the right-hand side um, is a graph that shows a proportional contribution of claims by claim amount. For both graphs, we can see that at the younger ages, there's a higher proportion of accidental deaths compared to the older ages, and on the right, on average, accidental deaths had a higher proportion of claim amounts. So basically, if you're a 29-year-old guy who smokes and lives in Joburg, you have an accident waiting to happen. On a more serious note, if we think about risk assessment and the current uh, market practice, we only focus on underwriting natural claim, natural claim causes. What is interesting is that our data shows that accidental deaths account for nearly a third of our claim costs. So what does this mean for the industry? 
most people believe that we cannot underwrite the accidental risk as the very definition of an accident is that it's an unforeseeable event. But our data shows that unforeseeable events like accidents occur more frequently in some cities more than others. So transport accidents occur more in Joburg compared to Cape Town in one gender than another. And I'll let you guess which one that is. Uh, and people with certain habits uh, such as non-smokers, such as smokers, sorry. So is it really a case that we cannot underwrite for accidental risk? Some may argue that the price, the risk is priced in, which is a valued argument, but we know that customers are increasingly asking for more personalized risk assessment and pricing so that they're not subsidizing risky lives. As mentioned earlier, the top two causes in our data were accidents and suicides, so I will touch on them briefly. Um, in a marital status, in a study done in New Zealand, it found that singles, those who are not married, are twice as likely to have a collusion as compared to their married couples. So those who are married and have kids probably drive a bit more carefully. The Federal Trade Commission in the USA also found that regardless of external factors such as income, drivers with a, very lower, with a lower credit score are more likely to claim from their insurers. So while this is all interesting, what does it mean? For example, from a pricing perspective, most companies price accidental risk using only age and gender. We could add further granularity by introducing new rating factors such as smoker status, marital status. So more granular pricing means that more competitive rates in certain pockets. With data analytics and big data, we should be able to analyze our claims data and see what other additional drivers are there to incorporate in pricing. We can see from um, David's presentation that if we do have access to data, there is quite a lot of interesting data analytics and machine learning we can apply. And this morning when Adam spoke, one of the things he did say that is that data, Linux, data analytics will change the insurance game in the future. Um, looking at suicides, this is becoming a global issue with more awareness around mental health. This is especially in considering the recent celebrity suicides, the suicide of the UCT Dean of the Faculty of Health Science, Dr. Moyosi, in 2018, and October is now Mental Health Awareness Month. According to the World Health Organization, there are 800,000 suicides per year. And indications are there that for each adult who has died, 20 others have committed, have attempted suicide. As an interesting fact, Sri Lanka is estimated to have the highest suicide rate in the world. In terms of motivation, the obvious one is mental illness. We know that mental illness is one of the highest causes of claim in the disability income space. And now that we see it is starting to impact life cover through suicide. We know that claims teams, especially in the group income disability space, are under huge pressure due to increased incidences and reduced terminations, and they don't have the capacity for more frequent and active intervention for claimants suffering from mental illness. But what if, what if we could use existing digital technology to assist us and our customers to manage their mental health? But that definitely is a topic for another day. 
As mentioned by Michael, we are seeing an increase in volatility over the last few years and large claims. This has affected some companies more than others. We cannot conclude that it's getting worse, but there is something we need to investigate further. By investigating further, we're looking to see if it is worsening and what are the other drivers. From an occupations perspective, farmers have contributed to the volatility. We do need to dig deeper to see what is driving this and allow for it in the underwritings and application stage. As we have seen in this presentation, there are drivers that could influence accidental risks. Shouldn't we then spend more time understanding what they are and underwriting them? Due to the increase in suicides, there's an increased focus on mental health. And even in the disability income space, mental health is becoming a bigger issue which needs to be looked at further. Thank you. All right. Any takers for questions? You can have your mic back. I can float a question to David first. What do you think would happen if we put that data through your economic model? I think it would perform well. <laughs> really well. <laughs> right. Is there a question down here? Yes. Okay, there we go. Uh, sorry about that. My question is just uh, about what Zandile mentioned about customers wanting more customized cover for accidents as well so that they don't subsidize risky um, um, behaviors of people with a high risk. So does that mean, because uh, for many people, especially at a younger age, accidents health cover has been that low-hanging fruit, that cheaper product that everyone could afford, but does it mean that, you know, you might have to change the underwriting and that will affect pricing? of uh, accidental cover um, and, um, you know, do a bit more underwriting than just age and um, occupation. Thank you. Are you referring to just accidental cover here or...? I'm, I'm just referring to accidental cover because when you look at the fact that, uh, you know, you, you are surprised at how much is actually uh, of that claims accident account for. So I'm thinking, although whole of life it would cover accidental cover, but there are people that just buy accidental cover because it's the low hanging fruit. So if you think, um, you know, that trend doesn't mean that on its own will need to be more underwritten. Thanks. Um, maybe as a start, I would mention that in our analysis, we excluded accidental only cover. So this was your whole life products as a start. So we do think that, I mean, it is an angle that we need to look at in terms of underwriting. There is a bit of work that we are doing at Genry, but we can't share all the details here um, specifically. But I mean, in the graphs that we did show at the younger ages, they are exposed to more accidental risks. So it would have an impact on price if we do, um, obviously, uh, uh, if you do uh, take into consideration all the information that we do have. I don't know if Michael wants to add more. For me, there's a, for me, there's additional part to that in that, are you buying accidental cover because you, you think you're inherently more risky? I mean, that's where I think you want to, I guess, charge more. So for me, it's, it's almost saying, 
Um, if we can tie into third data, data providers and you do buy the covered, do we know more about you potentially and can we offer you something that's, that's maybe even cheaper than what you would currently pay? Um, so, but I do think we need to understand that why specifically are you buying it? I mean, I think this, this question also arose because we spend, a, as an industry, we spend a lot of time and a lot of money m medically underwriting people um, who come in and buy their first policies, you know, more than likely in their 30s. And we see that, you know, the, the biggest driver of cost are the accidental claims, and that is going up. You know, so if half the claims are non-natural or accidental, why aren't we doing anything to understand that better? So I think that's kind of more the, the philosophical question that we will or that we're kind of working through at the moment? Is there more you could do on that side to better classify your risk? Right, there's a question down on this side. Thank you for interesting statistics and paper. Have you looked at industry accidental accidents, so within industry, within the workplace, and, and so on? We've known over the years that mining has been generally attracted a loading, but uh, other industries not? Um, not specifically for this exercise, no. Um, I mean, some of the previous work we've done, um, some of the paper Paul did a few years ago, they looked at sort of on the workplace side, so the working life mortality papers looked at that in more detail, but it was a bit more focused on the group side. But for this exercise, we didn't specifically look at that, no. Yeah, well, I mean, on the group side, we, uh, the Industry is a risk factor, and I think mining is quite high there. Uh, I mean, this is looking at individual retail products and also mortality only. So, yeah, as far as I know, most of the industry doesn't use occupation in that classification. But, I mean, what we are finding is occupation has a huge impact on, you know, the level of accidental death rates. So, you know, I think there has been a lot written about, um, you know, the impact of, you know, farmers also tend to have high covers, so that is driving a lot of the volatility. So could you underwrite that differently, for example? Or should we start rating with occupation, with occupation and mortality cover. So those are some of the questions. What's also quite interesting as a side note is, is we get a questions from our clients around pricing accidental risk quite often, and we have a really granular basis in terms of what we can apply. But essentially the feedback is also always just, apply, just give us something that's as simple as possible. And, and in some cases we just go back for large pieces of business with the one number, um, and then they would apply that one number. So it, it, I think there's a, maybe a potential uh, sort of um, change in mentality that, that's also needed is let's, let's do start pricing more granular um, for those businesses. Uh, there's two questions back there. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Uh, it's Pedri here. Um, I just want to have your view on whether you actually think suicides may be understated and some of the accidents are actually overstated in a sense, like some of the suicides are incorrectly, <laughs> incorrectly defined as, as accidents. Definitely, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, if you speak to any claims team, they will tell you figuring out a claim stage is extremely difficult. Um, so, I mean, I won't trust this and say this is 100% accurate, this is, this is the information at hand, but I think when you go back to the claims team and, and on what's happening on the assessment side, there's definitely a possibility of, of, of missing claims and misclassifying them. So, for those of you who don't work close to a claims team, there are often um, cars that end up 
or we had uh, an incident there at our timbre a little while ago. So yes, those kind of things happen, classified as a car accident, but very definitely not. Um, there was another question back there, or oh, one down here in the front row. Thank you for that. Um, for me, um, I'd just like to hear a bit more about how lifestyle choices of the uh, customers actually influence um, the claims. I think you've spoken about smoking habits. What would be interesting to see is in the accidental claims, how many of those were actually related to uh, drunk driving? And then secondly, in the, you know, in the, um, I think it was violence in Cape Town. It would be interesting to see um, how the effect of drug use um, you know, impacts that. Thanks. I mean, it would have different impacts. I think it, it almost ties back to the previous question is, is it's very hard to have that data available, especially at our end. So maybe our clients have access to that. I mean, ideally we would want to move to a world where all the data is everywhere and then we can analyze everything and know what your drug alcohol levels were. We will probably not pay your claim and you won't make it to the statistics. But um, So it would be interesting also to start looking at that. So, so looking at, um, I guess, the decline claims. So how many of those declines cl claims were related to alcohol or to drug abuse or whatever the case may be. But I think at this stage it's, it's very hard to have access to that level of data. Um, yeah. I think, uh, but also some of the analysis kind of backs up our intuition. So, I mean, the fact that there's more motor vehicle accidents over weekends or high violence would relate to, I think, alcohol consumption and things like that. So I think it's, it's in there, but to split it out is quite difficult. Other questions? Uh, there's one in the front. Thanks for a great talk, guys. So just uh, moving away from the accidental, back to the occupational side. So business owner is quite a broad occupation, as we know. Have you guys done any work into that to understand it better, to be smarter on underwriting it? We've done a lot of work on it. Um, it, it, <laughs> it sounds like we're getting to the same point, but it's again, it's again the data side. So. Um, we, we would ideally would want to do a lot more work around occupation and, and getting um, sort of occupation information up front. Um, unfortunately, we work in a world where occupations are changing dramatically. So um, the occupations we know today, I mean, it's going to look vastly different in two years. Um, so we are working on internal stuff in terms of understanding that. Um, for this analysis, it's just not available at that granular level. Um, I mean, the business owners is very vague, but it's, it's your, I guess, from accountants to even the, the farmers would account for business owners. So um, it's not ideal that you have that happening in the industry, but um, um, you're also sitting with the individualized book. I mean, that's what's driving the need. So um, I'm trying to think. Well, I think, I mean, I saw the, some non-disclosure stats a little while ago and whether sort of so non-disclosure is, is climbing and the, the categories, and I think occupation class is one of the, the big non-disclosure items. At claim stage, you know, we, we are looking at a, a farmer claim, but he happened to put down business owner because he doesn't, he doesn't farm as much, but he owns the farm. So I think there is a, a lot of, you know, I don't know if it's non-disclosure on the part of the policyholders or brokers because, you know, business owner attracts a better underwriting outcome or, or price or whatever it is. But I think we are seeing a 
a big squash into in, I mean, it's also one of the largest exposures we have, and we know that can't be right. So that is something that does need solving. And just tying into that, that was actually very interesting. So, so we did a big analysis in terms of um, the South African market and the UK market. So, so as Jason said, occupation was the second highest one that's non-disclosed in, in, in South Africa, but it's very low in the UK. I mean, I think it shows a bit of the mindset in terms of, I guess, the intermediaries and how they're coaching and getting preferential rates in a sense. Um, so I would imagine that's also driving it um, partly. Um, but it was interesting to see the especially difference between the UK and, and South Africa in that, in that space. And one on the far side. I'm just uh, interested in what the accidental rates would look like for funeral business. I know that your study was mainly focused on whole of life cover um, that you guys are reinsuring mainly, I guess. And I know that you typically don't reinsure a funeral business, but given the accidents that we see on the roads, I mean, a lot of them affecting the lower LSMs, um, do you guys have a view of what the accidental rates look like compared to the whole of life um, cover that you guys were looking at? We, we haven't looked at that in, in, in detail, but I mean, from working in, in the field for a while now, um, we typically almost quote 0.9 to 1 per mil as your standard um, accidental rate. And I mean, it, it does vary by the different factors, but I think as a, as a rough start, 0.9 to 1 per mil is a good start. Um, and what we're seeing is on the accidental side, when you refer to the road accidents, um, across the spectrum it's 0.45. So you're looking at, at sort of, um, let's say, half of your, of your accidental rate um, being attributable to, to that. I mean, it's looking different than this because we're looking at a different population, um, but I would say half of, of your average um, accidental rate, uh, average your accidental rate would be due to, to the car accidents. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it definitely would be, would be higher um, because when, as you're saying, I mean, that's, a, that's an average. Um, and I think if, if, you, if you look where car accidents are happening, where pedestrian accidents are happening, where violence is happening, I think it's very skewed across the, the socioeconomic spectrum. Thanks, guys. Um, question from a single male from Jobek. Zandile um, <laughs> <laughs> is married. She's married, just, just by the way. Just... <laughs> just because uh, next we're going to have quite an interesting talk about from Francois on ethical justifications of some of the risk factors or, or factors used in our underwriting. Um, do you think, especially for the accidental risk factors you highlighted, do you think they can easily be justified, especially if you think about the mobility of people? So if I'm based in Sentin, work in Sentin, clearly I might have lower exposure and different exposure to someone who lives in Midrand and works in CBD. I don't really want to answer you because I think it's, a, it's part of a massive debate and I'm not, probably not fully equipped to answer that. But I get your point and I agree. But what's interesting is, is a, I don't know, my colleague is here, Bruce Robertson. He had a talk a while ago at one of our conferences around, um, it was quite an interesting topic, but almost saying we need to be, I, don't, I can't answer you, I'm not going to answer you directly, but I'll do it indirectly. It's saying um, we, we're trying to, on one end, we're trying to use data and we're almost trying to price you, I guess, almost as accurately as we can. doesn't matter who it is. Um, and we want to make it very granular and I guess we 
potentially getting to a point it's where it's just a discounted value of your claim. So that's, that's on the one end. And on the other end, we've got this thing where let's charge one average for the whole population. Um, and I guess we probably, in order to do insurance, you need the pooling of risk. I mean, that, that's how insurance works. So how that shifts between the two, um, as an industry, we need to be very careful in terms of how granular do we go. So to your point, I, I fully agree with you. We need to be careful that we don't go too granular. But yeah, I don't know where exactly that line is drawn. Yeah, I mean, there, there is the trend to, as, as Mark says, on that end, you end up with lots of pools of one, where you're pricing everyone according to their ex exact risk, which kind of breaks the insurance principle. So, you know, and then on this end, you just, you know, you have that single rate for everyone. Everyone's allowed in that kind of universal acceptance. And there's the difference between those. I mean, the, the, the point of this talk is also, I, I wouldn't want the outcome to be that we can't insure farmers anymore. It, it is more around how do we underwrite that differently. So, you know, if it's becoming a larger part of our pool, uh, you do have this business risk mix if they're suddenly having worse claims. So it is how you deal with that without excluding them or breaking your financial results. So part of this is, is pulling it apart and seeing what needs to be fixed rather than just excluding. And the same applies then, I think, to your question. So it's not trying to identify the worst risks to kick them out, but it is in, underst in understanding how you form solutions around that that um, benefit both parties. Going back to David's um, presentation, I'm just curious, you mentioned fit for purpose. Um, did you investigate an aggregate look at predicting lapse rates by any chance, and did you experience any challenges in looking at that? Uh, do you mind explaining uh, what you mean by aggregate? So rather than trying to predict whether a certain case is going to lapse, for your whole book, what your future lapse experience might look like based on your, yeah. your trained model. Yeah, so, so typically what we, we do with some of our actual versus expected assessments is we take a pretty broad category and then we compare the actual versus expected by that broad category. Um, so, for example, some of the aggregated views would be essentially just aggregating your lapse experience per year, per calendar year, over the whole cycle. Um, and then looking how that book on an aggregate view, if you say you're predicting a thousand lapses, are you actually getting a thousand lapses or not on your book? Um, what is quite important is in looking at the aggregate views, you sometimes need to still look at areas where there is volatility, especially with your economic indicators, because you would see, we saw it in the banking sector, in your later periods, a lot of your economic indicators are flat. Um, so if you have an out-of-time sample and if you do a granular view or an aggregated view on your out-of-time sample in a flat setting, you might not be testing that volatility, so you might not actually be testing if the metrics are working. Um, so to answer your question, aggregate views definitely, um, but in those aggregates we still needed to unpack some of the volatility um, and dive into those to see if our actual versus expectors were working. Did he answer your question? Okay. <laughs> All right, one at the back. Hi, thank you. Um, it's a very, very insightful talk. Uh, I just thought, uh, and maybe this gets back to the availability of data, um, whether you add, add any uh, geographical uh, data related to the, f the farming exposure experience that we saw. Um, I guess the highest suicide rates could be 
Um, related back to drought uh, or, or difficult uh, times being experienced uh, in farming, um, uh, whether the, 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 the data supports that in terms of location. Um, we didn't look at that level of detail, no. So, I mean, part of it is we're sitting with a large book of claims. Um, uh, with, with that, with that said, I mean, it was it was more than 200 claims, but you, you because you are limiting it to 500 five million rands, um, some reinsured. You're not sitting with too much credibility if you want to do that level of detail. So, um, I think for aggregate views, it's but in terms of going into that amount of detail, I don't think you're going to tease all that out. Um, we. I don't even know. We wouldn't have that level of, of detail in our in our data anyway. Um, in the exposure data, I can't think we would. Even I don't even think the insurers have it. The insurers have it. So um, it would be very interesting to look at it, but I don't think it's available. I have heard some anecdotal evidence that I mean there are differences, and, and I mean it, it would make sense. I think there is a you know there is a. a well, I asked the first question. I, I do think there's a link between you know the current economic crisis, political noise, yes, there's drought um, that is driving a lot of this, and I think. When you, when you look at something like drought, it is geographic dependent. So I think that definitely would play a role. But no, I mean, we don't have any, any numbers to confirm that. Thank you. There was one more at the back. There we go. And I think then I'll let you out for lunch. Sami always has difficult questions. <laughs> I'll try it, make it fun. My question is for uh, David on the lapses. Yeah. So you touched... And thinking about potential applications of uh, this work you've done, you touched on the first one of sort of, which is sort of the general question of trying to predict who's going to lapse next so you can try and intervene. Another common application of a lapse investigation is to set a lapse basis for reserving. Have you thought about how this could work for that? And then my mind immediately jumps to now I'm dependent on economic variables, but I don't get their values in the future for free. How do, how do you um, handle that? Yeah, so um, one of the, the applications is to improve your lapse estimates and your reserving basis. Um, so we have had a few discussions there. Um, we haven't, so we've started the discussions there per se. Um, in terms of having a forward-looking view, um, what we did in the banking sector is, yes, you are correct, sometimes you do need to have economists projecting your metrics forward and that does cost money. Um, so what you will see when you build the models is you might have scenarios where your economic variables have an impact. That impact might not be immediate. Um, so you can build in a model with variables that are lagged by nine months or 12 months and by using a lag you can still have a at least a year forward-looking view for, for your estimates. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does feel like you solved for one problem, but just created a, now we need an economic yeah. scenario generator to fit in. Um, where I do think it is useful, though, is if, you know, lapses jump 20% in a year, um, you know, all the, all the executive layers above you are going to start asking why. Um, and if there's a model that says, well, based on what the economics did this year, it's, it's understandable. I mean, it, it provides a a level of insight that we potentially didn't have before. You know, so looking at volatility around um, our lapse rates, if they're all fully explained by the model, then it's, it's just the economics stupid. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and on that, so what, what we did see, um, I think I should clarify as well, even if you do pay for economic projections, what you will see is if you look at the accuracy of those projections, you don't always have a glass ball 
Um, so it's an easy go to saying, okay, the rejections were wrong, um, but then are you really adding value? Um. All right, going once, twice. All right, I think just uh, thanks again to the presenters and then we'll see you at lunch.